just going to ride that feeling throughout the course of my lifetime. However, this was not the case for Phelps. Even after winning eight gold medals in Beijing, Phelps says that he despised the image of perfection that he, in his success that he had created. In an interview with SportsCenter, Phelps said this, I was just a train wreck. I was just a time bomb waiting to go off. No self, watch this, no self-esteem, no self-worth. So if he thought that winning all these medals was going to hype up his self-esteem or his sense of self-worth, it did not happen. And he came to that realization on his own. So how does the most successful swimmer in history have a self-esteem problem? Well, Phelps stumbled onto the truth that many Christians already know. And that is our sense of worth and purpose was never meant to lie in our own accomplishments or on the basis of the praise of other people. Man, if you live for the applause of others, <laughs> you're going to be sadly disappointed because the people who are applauding you one day will be criticizing you the next. And so he, he came to that realization. And so the breaking point happened for him in 2014 when Phelps was pulled over for speeding in his hometown of Baltimore. And he was, he was cited and arrested for his second DUI in 10 years. And he spent the next five days secluded in his home. And here's what he said as he contemplated suicide. For a moment, I thought it was going to be the end of my life. Literally, yeah. It'll probably just be better without me. People won't have to deal with my BS and I give them or the crap that I put them through. I just figured the best thing to do was to end my life. How does a man go in a short period of time being on top of the world to wanting to end his life. You see, this is why people need the Lord. Because whatever you thought was going to do it for you, whatever sense of accomplishment, whatever achievement that you may have acquired in life, you thought that was going to do it for you. You thought that was going to be the settling issue, only to find out it just wasn't enough. And enter into Phelps' life was Ray Lewis, a former Baltimore Ravens linebacker who also struggled with addiction. And he, you know, helped Phelps, uh, you know, so to speak, pulling him back out of his own dark experiences and helping him get into rehab in Phoenix. And um, during that time, uh, he gave, Lewis gave Phelps a copy of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. And it was the first time that Michael Phelps ever really understood what his purpose was in this life. That it wasn't just an achievement, it wasn't just an acquiring, it wasn't just in the fame and fortune. He had all those things, but he was miserable. And he says, I, he, here's, and I, and this is a quote from him, it's not about accomplishment, accomplishments, it's not about praise, life is about God and our need for him. People need the Lord. I don't care how successful they may be on the outside, what they may have acquired, whatever size house they live in, whatever car they drive, people need Jesus. And so this is what, uh, for the next three weeks, what Who's Your One is really all about. It's the person who is far from God that you can pray for, that you can invest in, and that you can share 
the love of Christ with. And, and that's what God challenges us with. And I don't know about you, but there are many people in my life that fit that category. And so, you know, you can put who's your one or you can put who's your 20. But if you're going to put who's your 20, make sure you spend equal amount of time of praying and investing and inviting and, and sharing the love of Christ. I'm just asking you for one, one person for the next 30 days and then perhaps continue that throughout the year. It doesn't mean that whoever your one is may come and you know, give their life to Christ. I don't know. They may. It may take you a year. It may take you a long time. Uh, you know, as you well know, I prayed for my mother for over 20 years, inviting, investing. And she, you know, she'd hear, she would hear me preach and, and all these things before she ever came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You just can't give up on people. And so we have to, uh, you know, some of you are already breaking out in the cold sweat. Oh, no, evangelism. I don't know. Let's throw the word evangelism out, okay? I just want you to set up an environment in that person's life that gives the Holy Spirit opportunity to operate within the realm of that atmosphere and in their heart. You've never saved anyone. I've never saved anyone. It is a work of God, but we are the instrument through whom the Holy Spirit works. And so we just have to put ourselves in a position to kind of let him out and let him loose and let him do his thing. We are not supposed to reflect our culture. We are commissioned by Jesus to transform our culture. And discipling means submerging uh, them in God, not religion. Our culture has relegated the kingdom of God into some kind of subculture. The kingdom of God is our culture, and it is the culture that we are bringing to planet Earth. All right? So the culture of our society, the culture of our world, is not the culture of the kingdom of God. It is foreign to them. If you don't believe me, just read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. There is a God of this age, Satan, who, who, who is the kingdom of darkness, the overseer of the kingdom of darkness. That is the culture of the world in which we live. And so Jesus came to bring the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light and life into this culture. And so we as followers of Jesus Christ who are citizens of that kingdom, it is through our lives that the kingdom of life and light gets brought into the realm of the kingdom of darkness and death. Whether you realize it or not, because you are a carrier of the Holy Spirit, you are a very powerful entity in the hands of God in bringing the kingdom of God into the realm of this world. Don't shortchange yourself. This is not for the spiritually elite. This is not for those who have been, you know, had uh, 34 weeks of evangelism training. I'm going to show you next week how God can just use you, your personality, your likes, your dislikes, and how he can effectively use you to infiltrate into the kingdom of darkness. So most Christians are not prepared for the battle that awaits them in the marketplace because we only train ourselves in the context and the environment of friendliness, right? So what, what do churches do when they give evangelism training? Let's all enter into a room. We're all around friendly people, 
and let's learn some you know, verses and, and maybe a technique and let's, learn, let's try it out on each other. And so it's all in a very friendly environment. We all speak Christianese. We all understand the language. And, and, and so it's a safe place. Or small groups, you know, we, we, we sit around a table and we talk about the lostness of the world and the need for Jesus to save people. And it's all in a very uh, close-knit, very safe environment around very friendly people. But what we have not done is we have not prepared the church, we have not prepared our children, we have not prepared our students who are out there in that dark world to, um, to take the gospel into that environment where the pushback might be, uh, you know, something they're not ready for, right? So not everyone that you share Jesus with is going to be like real thrilled that you brought his name up. Right? I can go into any place and talk about God all day long. But when I bring Jesus into the middle of the conversation, now all of a sudden the environment changes drastically. If you don't believe me, try it. I, I can assure you. So we have to understand that we are entering into the lion's den. And so we can't do that effectively if we only train where we are, we're among the already convinced my point is this, when you effectively take Jesus into the world, you have to also be prepared for the pushback, all right? So uh, if somebody rejects your message, they're rejecting Jesus, okay? Th this is not your problem. That's, the, that's, that's Jesus will take care of that. The Holy Spirit will take care of that. It's not always going to result in, a, you know, a, a positive feedback. Some people may say, you know what? I really don't believe anything you're telling me. I really don't want to hear it because I don't believe any of it. In fact, I think the Bible is nothing but a fairy tale, and, and it's, that's okay. Don't worry about that. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to create an environment by which the Holy Spirit can operate, and so that's what we're seeking to do. Or uh, it might be somebody says, you know, that's very interesting. Um, you know, I, I'd like to hear more. Or some people may respond in the positive. All kinds of ways people might respond. The fact is, if we only train, if, if we train only for the church, we will completely be ineffective among those who are lost in darkness. Because life in God's kingdom is risky and it's messy. If you want a nice, neat, organized life, you will eliminate most of the works of God from your life. Because when you start, when a church is serious about entering into the realm of Satan's kingdom with the good news of Jesus Christ so that people can receive Jesus and thus receive the Holy Spirit and be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Satan does not stand back and sit back and think, oh, well, I'm just going to let that happen and not raise a finger. You're, you're too much for me. No, it can get real messy. It, it, but this is what God's called. Listen, fear will keep you on the sidelines and out of the game. Someone has said the Holy Spirit is imprisoned in the bodies of unbelieving believers. Faith requires risk. But the risk is worth it because people need the Lord. A lot of people don't say, won't share their faith is because, well, you know, um, I have to work with these people. I have to live around these people. I'm neighbors with these people. 
And, you know, now, now they're, they're just going to think less of me, and they're going to think, you know, I'm weird. You have to take that risk, okay? You have to take that risk. If, God, if all God did was to call us out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom so that we could be, you know, like really nice people and, and, and never take the risk of sharing Jesus, yeah, nobody's going to give you pushback. No, nobody's going to, you know, maybe look down at, uh, upon you. Yeah, you, you won't receive any of that, but neither will you see people come to faith the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Somebody has to take the risk and to go out and do it above and beyond just our own family members. Because yeah, that's a safe environment, right? You know, if I'm sharing with my mom, okay, well, she's going to be kind to me. She would say, you know, I, I, she, I really don't want to hear it or I really don't want to be part of that. But she was kind. And most people, by and large, they're not like, you know, going to come at you with claws. Most people are just kind enough to say, you know what, I just, I just really don't believe that or I just really don't want to hear that, but it is still our responsibility to be the participators in it. And here's why. Genesis chapter 3. I think if you're going to be involved in something, you have to understand why you are involved in it. And so here is, we go back to the beginning. We always go back to the beginning where it all transpired, where it all took place called the fall of man. The fall of humanity. We live in a fallen world among fallen people, which is why we need Jesus. Because listen, and I'll say this again later, Jesus is the only cure to humanity's problem. He's not one of many cures. He is the only cure for humanity's problem. Now notice what it says right out of the gate. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You surely will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now notice out of the gate, now the serpent. Who is the serpent? It is Satan. I'm going to give you three passages to write down. One is Revelation chapter 12 and verse verses 7 through 9. The other is Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. So Revelation 12, 7 through 9, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Listen very carefully. If you want to turn there, you can, but in Revelation chapter 12. And I'm just going to mention the other two verses. Here's what, here's what the Bible says to us and the identifying of who the serpent is. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, 
and referring to Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great da- dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth, and his angels with him. Now, where was he hurled down to? The earth. So in some time past, we know that Satan rebels against God, and he's overcome by the angels of God and the, demon, the, the angels that are siding with Satan. The Bible says a third of God's created angels sided with Satan, and, and so they're raging war against God. And so when we consider how did the world get in the mess that it is in, it is very popular in our day and time to blame some political party or to blame some person or to blame somebody's agenda, and that's typically what we do. But in Revelation 1, it says the serpent called the devil, Satan, which means adversary, that he is the one who began this whole mess. All right? So in Ezekiel 28, it describes God creating Lucifer, uh, this cherub angel of God, who somehow was responsible for the glory of God and led the worship of God. And the Bible goes on to say in Isaiah 14 that pride arose up within Satan, and you had the five I wills, and basically he says, I will overtake the throne of God. I will receive God's worship for myself. I will be the one who's going to be the exalted one. And I will, and I will, and I will. And so there's this coup against God with a third of the angels behind him, and so he rages war. And in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so Satan falls at the usurping authority against God in order to advance his agenda. He's cast down here to the earth. Now why is that important to understand? (laughs) Now watch this. The Bible says in the very first chapter of Genesis that the world was formless and void. And so it was there that the Holy Spirit was hovering over this formless void earth and that there that Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Father, began creating. He began planting a garden right up here upon planet earth. It was a thing of beauty. Everything God said, he spoke it into being. He spoke everything into being. And he says, I'm I'm creating humanity in my likeness, in my image. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune God, one God. God created you, spirit, soul, and body, which means your spirit is where God breathed into Adam the breath of life, the spirit of God. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions, and your body is this external body that you have. So when God created all that he did on planet Earth, he took Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden right in the backyard of Satan who had been cast out of heaven down to planet Earth, who had set up his kingdom here on planet Earth that is an authority that is running his agenda. Now all of a sudden God puts Adam and Eve right smack dab in his backyard. Now, what's he going to do about it? Notice that, um, that Satan 
this serpent doesn't come crashing into the garden. Satan doesn't come bulldozing himself into the garden, demanding that Adam and Eve surrender their authority over to him. So when God put Adam and Eve in this world, he gave them dominion, the Bible says. In Genesis chapter 1, you can look at um, verse 26. It says that they, God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, rule over the fish, the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that are moving along the ground. And so we see here that um, in Genesis 1, this perfect universe, Satan's rebelled. He's cast out of heaven down to earth, brought the fallen angels with him. Adam and Eve are created, put upon this planet, his backyard, in the Garden of Eden. They've been given dominion, which means authority or the power to oversee God's creation. Don't you think that kind of ticked Satan off a little bit? Now all of a sudden, God's interfering with his little kingdom, even though it was just he and his, his uh, you know, fallen angels. And so the stage is set for all of darkness to fall as man exercised his godly influence over creation. And so again, Satan doesn't come into the garden violently and taking possession. Why? Because he has no dominion there. The dominion had been given to Adam and Eve. God's the creator. They're the stewards of his creation. He gave them the power to steward what he had created. And so the suggestion to eat of the forbidden fruit was simply the devil's effort to get Adam and Eve to agree with him in opposition to God in order for they to give over their dominion and their authority over to Satan. In other words, if he can get them to rebel against God as he has rebelled against God, now the dominion and authority of man falls into his lap, and now he's the king and the ruler of this world. God's plan was that Adam and Eve would have children, and they would continue to populate the earth under the rule and the government of God, and that would continue to expand outside of the garden around the face of the globe. And for whatever reason, God could have destroyed Satan the moment with a spoken word, the moment he rebelled against them, him, but he did not. He chose rather to use, a, to use humanity to bring the entire world under God's dominion and rule and authority, which would forever just like, Satan's just like, I can't do anything about this. I can't do anything about this unless I can get Adam and Eve to agree with me that they ought to eat of this tree that God has forbidden because when they, the moment they agree with me and partake in that tree, now the dominion authority is put into my hands. You, you get that? That's exactly what happened. Remember what God said in Genesis 2? The day that you eat of that tree you will surely die. Well, what happened the day they ate? Ain't nobody dying, at least physically, at least at that moment. Now watch this. They died immediately in their spirit. The spirit of God moved out of them. That was their connection to God. Same way with us. The spirit of man is our connection to God Without the Holy Spirit within us, we have no connection with the God who created us. It's like having TV with no cable. Won't happen. They died progressively in their soul, their mind, will, and emotions. 
They start having feelings they've never had before. They start having relational conflict they never had before. And ultimately, they die in their body. This is the same condition you and I came into this world in. We came into the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, spiritually dead. And as a result of that, um, there's some rebellion going on inside of us. Our mind, will, and emotions are tainted by sin because we are under the dominion of and we are under the tutelage of the evil one because we've been born into his kingdom. Remember, you didn't get born into God's kingdom until you were born again through Jesus Christ. Paul says, Colossians 1.13, it's at that moment that God transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Please keep that in mind, dear saint. The only way a human being transfers kingdoms is through Jesus Christ. And so there is a huge fallout that now begins to take place. And so the first thing that Satan did was what? He just challenged God's word. Hey, 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 did God really say that? Did God really say that? And by the way, uh, men, people always say, well, it's a woman's fault. We got into this mess. Okay, so like when she gave to him, notice it says that he was like with her. That means elbow to elbow. In other words, he wasn't out doing manly things like killing and grilling. Instead, he, he's, I, it's like he's watching her eat it, this forbidden fruit, just to see if she drops dead. And in fact, she didn't drop dead. Okay, I'll take some also. Right? And so 1 Timothy says that he wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so although God has given man freedom and dominion, that freedom comes with a limitation, which is why the tree was in the garden in the beginning. Because God did not want Adam and Eve to ever know the other side of goodness. He never wanted them to experience fallenness, evil, hatred, all the things that come with it. And so when the fall takes place, Adam and Eve, they die immediately in their spirit, progressively in their soul, ultimately in their body. So here's the nature of sin. The nature of sin is this. Is number one is unbelief. Notice what, how the serpent launches again. He says, did God say... Did God really say, are you sure? Maybe, maybe you just learned that in Sunday school, but it's really not applicable. You can't really trust him. Uh, he doesn't really love you. He doesn't really have your interest at heart. You sh then he goes on to say what? You surely will not die. Now, please understand, every time you are tempted by the evil one, these same core components are part of that temptation. God doesn't love you, you really can't trust him, you know better, judgment's not real, you don't have to fear it, a good loving God would never punish people for their sins. And whatever part of your life is not like 100% sold out and surrendered to God, I guarantee you, you will fall for these components, and that's what we, this is why we struggle in our day in and day out lives, right? Because there's areas we just don't believe God, we're just not willing to trust him. We just think to ourselves, God, I know what you say, but it does not make logical sense to me. It is not common sense, and therefore, I, I'm not following. I'm not doing it. I just don't know that I can trust you that much. Number two is idolatry. Right after unbelief always comes idolatry. Idolatry is when we use God to get something that we value more than we value him. 
And so a certain, you know, again, he goes on, you surely will not die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open. This is in verse uh, 5, and and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, here's the thing that's going to be better for you than God himself. And so I talk to people all the time who are struggling and hurting and stressing and cheating and lusting and worrying and quitting and medicating and avoiding and searching. And you know what? They always, they get to that and they go, I I think I understand now the point of my problem. I think I understand where it's coming from. All of that is merely a symptom of a much deeper problem because idolatry is not just a sin, it is the sin from which all other sin comes from. This is exactly what Satan wanted, right, in heaven. He idolized God's throne. I want that. I want that for me. I don't want that. For, I want it for me. I think I owe, I deserve it. Lord, I've been worshiping you all these years, and I've been leading in worship, and I think I deserve a little worship myself. And so idolatry a God is what we sacrifice for and what we pursue. And so, you know, you put God on one side and whatever it is you're going after in, in spite of God on the other side, and it's like whatever it is, it always wins. And so idolatry is not just, again, one of many sins. It is the one great sin, and that's why God, in the very first two commandments, said what? Don't have any other gods above Beyond, above me, and number two, don't create any idol that's in, a, in an image, because this is the foundation that we all struggle with. Now watch this. It all, watch, unbelief, idolizing something that I want more than I want God, always leads to rebellion. Rebellion. And, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra used to sing the anthem of hell, I'll do it my way. And we read that, and we think, well, you read this and you think, how in the world did Satan get away with this? I mean, God had given them everything. He, he gave them this beautiful place to live. They just loved, loved, loved. Everything was good. They'd never experienced anything bad in their lives. God's walking with them daily and conversing with them. And, you know, they're in paradise for crying out loud. And how in the world could Eve fall for this? You see, it's just not her story. It's our story. We fall for the same stuff, right? And if you tell me, well, it's wrong, I'll just look at you and say, well, you know, I know this can kill me, but I know it might hurt me, but we just kind of bow up inside, and, and um, there's just this rebelliousness that's in us. I mean, you, you understand this as a parent, right, very early on. You got this little child that you've given birth to and life to and you've loved for and you've cared for them and you put them in a high chair and they, they're just, they just give you that look at some point and they just take their like bowl of oatmeal and give you that look like I'm going to dump this right on the floor and you know as a parent you panicked don't do it, don't do it, don't you dare do it, don't you, and they just give you that little grin like eh. <laughs> rebellion Right, so this happened not long ago with my granddaughter. Well, we were at our daughter's house. And so, you know, I could just see it happening. And, and my daughter's just like cut, starting to come a little unglued. And I, I just bust out laughing. So I'm no longer allowed at the table when my granddaughter's eating because I'm a bad influence on her. But, you know, we all laugh. And we remember how, how empowering it was to, to be rebellious, right? 
You know, you knew the rules and you know what they were, especially as a teenager, when you got your driver's license and you knew the rules of driving the car, but you just had this new sense of freedom and you got in your car and you cranked up the radio and you, you had the music blaring and you're just feeling all rebellious inside and you know what the rules are, but you know what, I'm just here to break every one of them. And you rebelled and you loved it. You felt so empowered, so cool, so slick. And man, the vibe just, whoo. And every time you get to that place empowered by your rebellion, you're thinking like Eve. You're you're confident this this is going to take you someplace really good and helpful. You're going to be like God. And then we get the backlash of the consequences of our rebellion but here's what I knew. When I was in deep in my rebellion, you know what I thought about everybody else who was not in rebellion? Loser. You're just a bunch of losers, man. You ought to be out here rebelling with me. You ought to be out here doing the things I'm doing. I know it's not legal. I know I shouldn't be doing it. I know it's not even really that beneficial for me or even healthy. But, man, I am living it up. I am in rebellion. You guys are just like the goody two-shoes. Those people who go to church and read their Bible and pray before a meal at high school. Losers. You guys are a bunch of losers. See, rebellion is very um, emboldening. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'm going to mess up, you can tell me, you know what, Greg, but you, you know, at some point in your life, you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up your family. You're going to mess up your life. You're going to mess up everything around you. I didn't care until you start reaping some of the consequences of your actions, right? And so the first act of rebellion happens in the garden. And uh, so here is, here's what every sin, every act of disobedience follows this pattern unbelief, driven by idolatry, thinking this is going to do it for me. God's too confining. God's too limiting. Those rules of God, those, those limitations he puts on my life, way too confining. I am free to rebel. And so rebel we do. And so here are our instinctive responses to sin. Same things we see here with Adam and Eve is one is insecurity. It's, it's that they were... They, were, uh, they, they discovered they were naked. What do you do when you feel naked? Right? You want to cover up. And this is just more than bodily nakedness. This is instinctively, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, a famous atheist, here's what he said. He said, inside every human heart, whether they believe in God or not, is a voice that whispers, not acceptable, condemned, and so people in our, their rebellion think they're getting free from God, like throwing off all restraints. Man, I'm throwing off all this religious baggage, and I'm throwing off these restraints, and I'm just going to be me and do my thing, and, and I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live. And we think that's, this is going to do it for us. But then all of a sudden, in our rebellion, we begin to experience this nasty little thing called guilt and shame. And so we try as we might, to cover it up. I felt tremendous guilt and shame in the midst of my rebellion, especially when I looked in the eyes of my mother. 
And so they made themselves fig leaves, right? So to cover themselves up, which I call the, you know, the first religion in the Bible. They're trying to you know, pay God back somehow by covering up. And so out of their insecurity, you know, they, they tried to, to hide everything. And then where, where'd they go from there? Out of fear, it says they hid themselves in the trees, right? Verse, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. He was walking in the garden the cool of the day, and they hid from him. And God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, if you're from the south, it's naked. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Had you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put in here with me, man, she gave me some of that fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so fear, and because of fear, they hid themselves. It's kind of like when my kids were little, you know, and they wanted to play hide-and-seek. You know, like they would hide under the bed, but their legs are hanging out. Or, or behind the curtains, you can see their feet sticking out. This is what Adam and Eve, this is what we try to, we try to hide from a God that we can't hide from. No matter how you try. And so we're not honest about our sin because sin is a very pesky little word. And we'd rather use a word like, oh, I don't have sin. I've got a hang up. I may be carrying some baggage in my life. Uh, it might be a disease, but, you know, or it's my Irish temperament or my German strictness or my Italian or Hispanic hot-bloodedness. But it's really not sin, right? So we don't even want to acknowledge the word in our society we don't use the word sin. We have inserted the word disease for sin because disease is something that happens to me beyond my control that I can't do anything about. Sin says, no, I'm responsible for what I've done, and I've done these things, and therefore I have to answer for it. And so then it goes to number three is, is, is just blaming, shift blaming, uh, shifting the blame. Uh, so what did God, he confronted Adam, says, okay, Adam, what do you do? Hey, hey, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. In essence, God, it's your fault. You gave her to me. You brought her into this garden. Everything was going fine until she showed up. Husbands, try that one on your wives. Throw her under the bus. You'll be calling me for a place to stay. But yet we think these things, right? Well, you don't know my wife. She's so impossible to live with and yada, yada, yada. And so we have this victim mentality that everything that's bad is somebody else's fault. And so he goes to Eve and Eve says, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's fault. And, and it's, it, you know, that's, and so this, look at this. Our instinctive response is out of our insecurity, out, out of being exposed, out of guilt, out of shame, my natural instinct is to hide, to mask myself. I don't want anybody to know the real me because if they really knew what was going on inside of my heart and inside of my brain, they would not like me. They would reject me. And therefore, I will only allow people to see what I want them to see. And if, if I do get exposed, I will very quickly shift the blame to somebody or someone else or something else, right? It's not my fault. 
We are in, it's not my fault society in our day and time. Here's the devastating consequences of our sin. Number one, and you can read this later on, there is the amplification of pain. God said to Eve, hey, you're going to give child, child, you know, have childbirth, but it's going to be a very painful experience. And it's not limited to just physical pain of childbirth. This is, this is a, you know, nothing breaks a mother's heart more when there's, con- than when there's conflict between themselves and their kids. Nothing breaks a mother's heart more. And you know what? I know, ladies, that it was a very painful process for you to give birth to that child. And your pain may have lasted from five minutes to 12 hours. I don't know how long you were in labor. But a rebellious child can bring pain into your heart for years. And God gave warning of that, man. Rebellion is at the heart of humanity. Number two is relational conflict. He says, man, Eve, you're going to have problems relating with your husband now. And this is symptoms of something much bigger because in the next chapter, what does Cain do? He is, he's going to be jealous of his brother Abel. He's going to kill, kill him. The fruit of idolatry is constant unhappiness, which leads to hatred and conflict. Thirdly is futility. He turns himself to Adam and says, Adam, you're going to toil the ground, and yet it's, it's not going to produce but anything but thorns and thistles, man. It's going to be like I'm, I'm, I'm just working, 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 working. I'm trying to achieve and trying to advance and trying to be successful and trying to provide, but yet it just doesn't bring any lasting satisfaction in my life. So I'll move on to the next thing, and I'll move on to the next thing. If I just get this house, if I get this car, if I get this boat, if I get this motorcycle, if I get this next thing, the next job promotion, the next whatever it is for you, that's going to bring satisfaction. And God says, it will never happen. They were not designed to. And then fourthly is death. Again, you know, chapter uh, 3 and in, in, in verse 19 speaks of this. It says to the, you know, from... You will eat your food until you return to the ground from what you were taken. From dust you are and dust you will return. So we all have to deal with this issue of death. We died again immediately in our spirit, progressively in our soul, ultimately in our bodies. And then number five, eternal loss of God's presence. What did God have to do? He banned them from the garden. There was no way back. But God left them a glimmer of hope. And so when God addressed Satan in the garden... He says, I'm going to raise up one who's going to strike you down. You're going to bruise his heel, but I'm going to strike you down. And what did God do? He came into the garden. He took Adam and Eve's fig leaves off of them, you know, our self-effort to, to get back into relationship with God. And God took the life of an innocent third party, an animal, sacrificed the animal, shedding its blood, and clothing Adam and Eve in that animal as a foretaste of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And all throughout the Old Testament, there'll be a sacrificial system staying back the wrath of God upon sin of humanity. And please note that um, it, it is God who's doing this. It is God who is the one who's going to answer the problem of humanity. He's the one who's going to provide the only solution who is Jesus Christ. And so here's the problem and what I want to close with. I got like two minutes. Here's the problem. We don't like the pesky word sin, as I mentioned before. For example, when my kids did something wrong, I didn't come up to my kids and say, hey, Stacy, you sinned, you sinned. 
Marissa, you sinned really bad. You sinner, sin, you sin, sinner, sinner, sinner. We don't like that word. We prefer to use the word mistake. I made a mistake, and here's why. Sin indicates that I knew what I was doing, but out of my little rebellious heart, I did it anyways, right? I was willful in what I did. But the word mistake means, uh uh-oh, lapse of judgment, miscalculation, I didn't know any better, Uh, this, you know, this is a lot better word because when you get caught, you can say, oh, my bad, I made a mistake, it's all good, right? So if I go into your home and I break your lamp and I can say, oh, I'm so sorry, accident, mistake, I'll, I'll pay for the lamp if, you, you know, if, if that'll make it right between the two of us because um, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to make restitution for my mistake. But here's the problem with that. If everything I do wrong can be dumbed down to where I make a mistake, that's all I've done, then I have become, and I know this is not an English word, I have become a mistaker. Do you know what a mistaker does not need? A mistaker does not need a savior. Because I just made a mistake. I'll pay back. I'll make restitution for what I've done wrong. Do you understand this is the mindset of the average person in the realm of Satan's kingdom. I'm not a sinner. I'm just making mistakes. I'm not, I know I, I'm not a perfect person. I try hard, but I've made a lot of mistakes. But don't worry about it. In the end, I will pay back. I will make restitution for my mistakes. But what the gospel says is simply this. You're not a mistaker. You are a sinner. You are born with a sinful, rebellious heart, You've lived that out. You've acted that out. And as a result of that, there are certain things that have happened to you through the course of your lifetime. Now, if you want to receive forgiveness, if you want to receive um, a, a blank check that says, you know what, I'll take all of your sins and I will mark them paid in full. I will wipe them out. I'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. I will remember them no more. If that's what you want, because that's what you need, you can have it free of charge through my son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to make payment for your sins so that you can now move from being a sinner to becoming a saint of God. Listen, Being a sinner is not the basis of what you do. It's the basis of who you are. Becoming a saint of God is not based on what you do. It's all based on what Christ has done for you. And you are a saint of God by your identity in Christ, not by what you may or may not do from that point on. This is why the world needs Jesus. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, dying of the soul, death of the body, eternal separation from God, and therefore Christ is the answer. Because the, Paul says, the wages of sin of death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And until you embrace, embrace the fact that you are a sinner, you are not open to embracing the fact that God has sent you a Savior. And the only requirement in entering into this relationship is both repentance and faith. 
Repentance means I'm changing my mind that changes the direction and the course of my life. I'm no longer trying to pay God back. I'm no longer trying to make restitution for what I've done wrong. I'm no longer looking at myself as a mistaker, but I am acknowledging myself as a sinner in need of a Savior, and only the Savior can forgive me of my sins and bring within me spiritual life through the Holy Spirit and begin to bring healing in my mind, will, and emotions in my soul and who can ultimately bring healing in my body. That's why the world needs Jesus. There is no other solution that God has ever given to humanity's problem other than Christ. And so the Christian life is all about helping others down that road, that pathway of receiving Christ by faith. So church, Jesus gave to us the keys of the kingdom, the dominion and the authority to provide an environment by which the Holy Spirit can operate in the hearts and the lives of people around us so that they too can find the very Jesus that you have found. So let's bow our heads together. I don't know your spiritual condition here this morning, but I can say, based on the authority of God's word, that if you've never embraced Jesus by faith to be your Savior, to be your Lord, then you are not saved. You may know about Jesus. You may believe that he existed. But as I said before, even the demons believe that. They will acknowledge that, but they're not going to be in heaven. God is offering you a free gift, not one that you can pay for. You can't do enough good works because good works have never been God's method of payment for humanity's sin. The method of payment for humanity's sin has always been the blood of Jesus and his blood alone. The Bible says without the, the blood of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so what God's offering you is a gift of grace and you're just receiving it like a child receiving a gift from a parent. By faith, you're trusting in Jesus as the payment for your sin and you're acknowledging to God that yes, I am a sinner. I'm not a mistaker. I'm a sinner and I've committed sin against you and I cannot pay you back. But you're thanking God that Jesus has made the payment for you. At that moment that you receive him by faith, trusting in him and him alone for your salvation, you are grafted into Jesus' personal victory over sin, the devil, the death, and even the grave. Jesus defeated the devil with his sinless life, defeated him in his death by paying for our sins with his blood, and again in the resurrection by rising triumphant with the keys of authority over death and hell. He will extend those keys to you. His death, your death. His victory, your victory. This is God's desire for you, to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so if you're here this morning, you've never made that decision. You, you cannot pinpoint to a time that you've crossed that line of faith. And I encourage you to come this morning and make that decision. And to us as the church, Jesus said, all authority has been given 
to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. In other words, I have the keys back. Now go use them and reclaim mankind. It's in this moment Jesus fulfilled the promise he gave to his disciples when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And God never canceled his original plan. And we have been completely restored to the original assignment or the ruling as God's people made in his image. People who would learn how to enforce the victory obtained at Calvary here in this world. And Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You have authority over him. Satan has no authority over your life unless you come into agreement with him. You have the authority. Now let's take the authority. Let's take the keys. Let's start setting some captives free that they might experience and taste of the grace and the goodness of God. So Father, it's my prayer for all of us Lord, again, impassion us, embolden us to expand your kingdom right here on earth, just as the original assignment of Adam and Eve, to expand your kingdom right here on earth. God, that we'll do that right here, right in the middle of Satan's kingdom, because you've given us the dominion, the authority to do so. So by the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, may you raise up your church to be the warriors we need to be. We are fighting for the souls of humanity. And fight we will until our dying breath. It is our proclamation, our declaration in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together uh, as, we, as we sing in response to our Father this morning. I know that's a lot of information to assimilate. It's laying the groundwork here. Uh, yeah, as we sing, you've never received Christ in your life, and I'll be here at the front. Love to pray with you, whether during this time or after the service. It doesn't ma- matter to me. Church, this is our responsibility, man. This is this is what God's called us to do and to be. And next week we'll we'll show you how you can do that in the most natural, normal well, way that you can as God has designed you with unique talents and gifts and abilities and personalities. But it has to be done because if we don't do it, there's no angels coming from heaven to do this. It's been given to, in our hands and so we are responsible. Let's love the Lord. Let's serve Him. Let's declare Him. Let's shout on the rooftops about Him. Jesus saves Jesus heals and Jesus delivers. That's the power of the gospel.